You're listening to the Seabreeze Church Podcast. Morning, everyone. Good to see you today. Uh, This is a uh, difficult Father's Day for me because on Friday, two days ago, my father passed away. I'm pretty sure I'll get through this, but we obviously are grieving um, that loss. The the word um, patriarch has become a really bad word in our culture, but in the Bible, it is not. It is intended to call fathers towards great nobility and sacrifice. It's to be a call to be faithful to their wives and their children, to lay their lives down for them, to be faithful to God. And I was... Now, I know it's rare now, but I was blessed to experience that. I got a chance to experience um, the goodness that God intends from fathers. So for me, this is, this is both a happy and a sad Father's Day. So if you say, happy Father's Day to me, I'm not going to correct you, because it is both happy and sad. I am happy to be blessed by his legacy. I'm really happy that he's with Jesus, and he's not suffering. Uh, he's not sad. I am. He's not. But I am sad that he's gone. So I know many of you have been praying uh, for me, for our family, um, and I really appreciate that. I just ask if you would continue to pray for us as we deal with this, in particular my mom. I mentioned um, this August would have been their 65th wedding anniversary, so it's a big change, loss for her especially. So we really appreciate your prayers. So let's try to shift gears and focus on the message for today. We're in the middle of a series called Unshaken. And in this series, we are looking at how prayer can anchor us to the power of God in the middle of all the things, like death, that can shake us and rattle us to our core. The book of Psalms in the the Bible is the guidebook of prayer for the people of God. It teaches us how to pray. It contains prayers that were inspired by God and that were created, were carved out 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 of the unshakable nature of God. These are prayers that were formed not in quiet moments of reflection when everything was calm. These were prayers that came out of pressure, out of a crucible of either personal temptation or death or great failure or great opposition and persecution by others or great loss. And the goal of this series is to introduce all of us to the Psalms so that you and I will be able to use these prayers to gain stability when our world starts shaking, and that we might not just survive the shaking, but actually grow from it and thrive in the middle of the uncertainties of life. Now, if you were to ask any follower of Christ whether prayer is an important thing, I think they would all tell you that it definitely is. But if you ask most of us to describe our praying practices, if we're honest, I think most of, or if not all of us, would say we're not where we'd like to be. We don't pray as often as we'd like to pray, as long as we'd like to pray. It's not as meaningful as we really would hope it to be. So why is it that most of us struggle to pray? 
Psalm says that there are two main reasons that keep us from praying or keep our prayers weak when we do pray. These are the two reasons. One is distraction. The other is intimidation. We get distracted by the demands of life, and since prayer is not one of those demands, prayer does not demand our attention, we just tend to not get around to it as often as we really would like to. And the second reason is also true. We get intimidated by the great powers of our world, and we begin to doubt whether prayer really has any power to it or whether it's really accomplishing anything. There are 150 chapters in the book of Psalms. It's the largest book in the Bible. It's right in the middle of the Bible. It's pretty easy to find. So 150 chapters, and 148 of those chapters are prayers. The first two are not prayers. The first two Psalms, Psalm 1 and 2, are not prayers. These two get us ready to pray by addressing the two prayer barriers that I just talked about, intimidation and distraction. Two weeks ago, we started this series by looking at Psalm number one, which deals with the barrier of distraction. Now we turn our attention to chapter two, which is the barrier of intimidation. This world can be a very intimidating place to live. A couple of weeks ago, we had gone to visit my father. Uh, my family are all from Canada. We were crossing back uh, from the border back into the States from Canada. And the Border Patrol agent asked my wife and I if we were Sooner fans, like from the University of Oklahoma, OU Sooner fans. Now, I was prepared for a lot of questions. I was not prepared for that question. With my family in Canada, I've crossed the Canadian border all kinds of times, been asked all kinds of questions, never been asked this question. So I was already a little nervous. You know, I, I tend to get nervous on a border crossing, not because I got something to hide, but I want to get home. Uh, but that question made me more nervous as I tried to understand what this question had to do with me getting back into the States. So I learned, hey, they try to throw you off, so just be honest. So I said, yes, we're Sooner fans. In fact, both of our kids graduated from OU, went to the University of Oklahoma. I actually thought of saying Boomer Sooner, which is what OU fans know to say to each other, but I, I held back. And so I asked him, are you a fan? He said, oh, no. I'm glad I held back. He said, I, I'm from Kansas. I went to K-State. I am not a Sooner fan. And he looked at me kind of sternly, and I thought for a moment we might be denied entry all because of football. <laughs> but then his stern look broke into a smile. It turns out he had noticed that my wife, Rebecca, had been born in Oklahoma City, and he was just missing home, stationed there in the Northwest, and Kansas and Oklahoma right next to each other, so he just wanted to talk a little bit about <laughs> about home. Now, I don't think he realized how intimidating he was. Or maybe he did. I don't know. But he was intimidating. And actually, after we got, he did let us through, by the way. After, obviously, I'm here. <laughs> after I got through that crossing, we were driving, and it, it took me a few miles just to uh, calm down because of the intimidation. Now, he personally wasn't the source of intimidation. It was the position he had. It was the uniform and the power 
that it was representing. He was an agent, is an agent of the most powerful nation on earth. And it was very clear in our exchange who had the power. He had the power. I didn't have the power. If I wanted to get back home with that incident, it was clear I better treat him with respect and I better answer his questions truthfully. That's how powerful governments are. But governments aren't the only source of power and therefore intimidation in our world. There's many other centers of power. Our economy and the economies of the world are another massive broker of power. The captains of industry, those who lead in our economy, they have the power to alter our world and our lives for good and for bad. And then there's the power of education that literally shapes the future thoughts of a culture and a world. Then there's all of the power of the sciences. And then there's the great power wielded socially by those who are famous and really have a megaphone to influence thought. And I could go on and on. There's all kinds of power bases. Now, you may be sitting here and thinking, I don't feel intimidated. Good for you. But the truth is, your life, all of our lives, are pushed around and altered all the time by these powers. And so here's the issue for today. In the face of all of the power of this world, what can prayer really do? That's what Psalm 2 is all about. Psalm 2, verses 1 through 12. I'm going to read the, the whole psalm, and then we'll go back and work our way through it. This is what it says. Why do the nations conspire and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us break their chains and throw off their shackles. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. He rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. I will proclaim the Lord's decree. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask me, and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. You will break them with a rod of iron. You will dash them to pieces like pottery. Therefore, you kings, be wise. Be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear. Celebrate his rule with trembling. Kiss the sun, or he will be angry, and your way will lead to your destruction. For his wrath can flare up in a moment. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. So, let's think our way through this. First of all, it makes the obvious case that the powers of this world have rarely been positive toward the God of the Bible. In fact, they are almost always banded together against, not for, but against the Lord. The word that's used in this particular psalm to describe what the powers of the world do against God's words is the word plot. They plot. Now, what's interesting is this is the word, the exact same word in Hebrew, the Old Testament was written in Hebrew, the exact same word is used in this psalm that was also used in Psalm 1. But in Psalm 1, this Hebrew word was not translated plot. It was translated meditate. Same Hebrew word, different translation. We talked about 
how we meditate on God's law. That's the same word for plot. Why a different translation? Well, the word literally in Hebrew means to, to ruminate over, to put your, get your mind working on this. So in Psalms 1, the rumination was over God's words and how to apply them to your life, and therefore it was called meditate. But in Psalms 2, it was rumination in opposition of God's words, not in application of God's words, and therefore it's translated plot. Against, ruminating, thinking about how can we get around these words and break these words and get away from these words. See, the powers of our world almost always see God's words, as it's described here, chains and shackles that restrict their freedom and get in the way of what they want to do. So this isn't anything new. This, throughout history, the powers of our world have always plotted to try to figure out how can we throw off these shackles? So they put their brilliant minds together and develop strategies to rid themselves of the, the pesky, limiting words of God and replace God's words with their own words. That's always been what's going on. And let's be honest, their plotting often works. I mean, just look at us right now. Just look at the moral shift in our nation. Whether you agree with it or disagree with it, everybody agrees we are changing morally a lot. And we didn't arrive where we are morally by accident. This didn't just happen. We just didn't stumble into this shift. It is the product of a lot of thought, a lot of scheming, a lot of plotting. It takes a tremendous amount of plotting and effort to change the moral landscape of the wealthiest and most powerful nation in about 30 years. That's amazing if you consider the power that's behind that. And let's be honest, it's intimidating. Day after day, article after article, movie after movie, law after law, post after post, we are shamed and pressured to reject the silly, outdated, and restrictive words of God. So again, let's be honest. Do God's words appear to be winning? No. The powers of this world and their plots seem to be winning, seem to be carrying the day. So when it comes to prayer, it has an effect on us even if we don't think it does. It's difficult for us to think that our prayers are doing anything in the face of this kind of thing. And that's the way it's always been. This isn't new. I mean, our prayers are up against the people who direct the sciences and run the schools and preside over the governments and produce the movies and rule the marketplace. In the face of all of this power, and let's be honest, all of this brilliance that's lined up against God and His Word, it's easy to let all of that intimidation either silence our prayers, or if we do pray, they take on more of a whimper than any sense that something important is taking place as we pray. So I'm going to ask the same question we asked two weeks ago when we talked about Psalm 1. Why would we pray? Psalm 1 told us why people do pray in the face of distraction, the first obstacle. Again, like I said two weeks ago, Psalm 1 doesn't tell us why we should pray. It tells us why people do pray. Why the people who pray, why they do pray. And the reason is because they properly imagine the impact that prayer has on their own life. 
That's why people pray in spite of the distraction of this world. Psalm 2, the one we're looking at today, applies the same approach, the same answer to why people pray despite intimidation. Is it's, it's because their imaginations are properly formed. They imagine the future accurately. In Psalm 1, we imagine the impact that our prayers and our rumination over God's words are going to have on us personally. We're going to be like this tree anchored into something deep that flourishes even though we're in a desert. So in Psalm 1, we pray because because we imagine properly the impact of prayer on us. In Psalm 2, we pray because we imagine properly the impact of prayer on our world. And when it comes to imagining, you know, imagination is just how we think the future might be. And we do two kinds of imagining about the future. We imagine the future eyes open and eyes closed. We're either imagining with our eyes open or our eyes closed. Eyes open imagination takes the current stuff that we see. Our eyes are open. We're looking at what's seeing. And it takes the trends of what we're observing, and it just extends them out. Just think of a graph. You, you've got this data point you've observed, and then this data point in this area, and then this data point. And then so you assume, based on the data, based on what you can see, I think we're going this way. I think this is where the future is going. This is the way most of us do planning. Eyes opened a planning. The assumption is that what we can see is the best predictor of the future, the future that we can't see. And so the conclusion of eyes open imagining is that the powers of this world are driving what's going to happen. They're the ones in control. But imagining the future with your eyes open has one big flaw. It cannot predict surprises. And the future, we know this, is always full of surprises. Why? Why is the future always surprising us? It's because the powers of this world are not, in fact, in power. If they were, there would have been no surprises. We would have been well prepared for COVID, well prepared for inflation, well prepared, whatever it is. But the powers of this world are always reacting to the surprises of this world. Why? They're not in power. Who is really in power? Well, I'm going to go out on a limb. We're in a church. I think most of us would say God is, right? That's right. That is the right answer. But again, let's be honest, that's not how it looks on the ground of our daily life. Every day we're impacted by what people do. We see that. We can't see how we're impacted by what God does. We can see how we're impacted by what people do. So we imagine eyes opened. We're impacted by what, you're impacted by what your boss does, what your kids do, what your spouse does, what the Fed does. So how can we see God in all of his power? That's why we pray. What's the first thing most people do when they pray? They close their eyes. Why? It's not commanded anywhere in the Bible. We're not told to do this. It's, if you want to pray with your eyes open, you can. Nothing wrong with that. But almost no one does. Why? Because when we pray we feel like we need to close our eyes in order to see what we can't see with our eyes. 
Prayer is the act of resizing both our world and our God. That's really what we do when we pray. And the reason that needs to happen is because every day that we live, just as you go through your normal day, you start at 9 in the morning and you end at 9 at night, as you walk through your day, every single day, you know what's going to happen? God is going to get smaller as you live through your days, and the world is going to, its power is going to get bigger because that's what you experience. That's why we need to pray. Daily life forces us just to look down at what's happening and deal with the people and the powers of this world. Daily life doesn't force us to look up at what God might be doing. That's why we pause, we close our eyes, and we pray. We look up. We resize, we get our world back down to size, and we get God back up to his proper size as we pray. Prayer is what enables us to get a glimpse into the world of God. And it turns out the world of God is far larger than the, world, the worlds of kings and presidents. It's a much bigger world than the news reports on or whatever is trending on social media. It's much bigger than anything you'll read about in the history books. The world of God is, is not just a part of the world of the sciences and the world of stock markets and rocket launches and politics. God's world contains those worlds and every other world of power. Now, even if you agree with this fact, you still can't see it with your eyes, can you? I can't either. So until the day, there will be a day when we will see God in all of his power, but that's not today. And until that day, you and I will have to pray our ways into this proper vision of the world. Now, if you remember from two weeks ago, Psalm chapter 1 gave us one image to inform our imagination about the impact of prayer on us, and it was the image of a tree. Now Psalm 2 gives us three images to impact our imagination about the power of prayer and its impact on the world. So let's look at these three images. Image number one is God's anointed ones. I'll explain what this means. The kings and rulers of this world are not just banded in opposition to God. It turns out they are also in opposition to those who are anointed by God you know, and the, his anointed ones. Well, who are they? In the Old Testament portion of the Bible, often when God wanted to initiate a big move here on earth, what he would do is he would select an individual and instruct that they be identified, marked, by pouring a flask of oil on their heads. Anointed. That oil marked them as representatives of God's rule here on earth. They were anointed to represent God. Now, in almost every occasion, as you read about these individuals who were plucked out of the society to be anointed, the, the person being anointed was a surprise because they were almost always a relative nobody. It almost often seemed as if God was looking for the least likely person to do his work here on earth. And so the response was almost always predictable. Them? Really? Yep, them. And those anointed ones would rise from their obscurity to lead God's people or to do miracles in his name. But only a few of them ever gained prominence on the world stage. Now, the Hebrew word 
that's used here for this anointing, the anointing one, the Hebrew word literally is Messiah. That's what this word means, Messiah. So then after about a thousand years of this kind of anointing, this kind of Messiah-ing, Jesus stood up in a synagogue in Nazareth and declared himself to be not just another anointed one, but the anointed one. He was not just one in the long line of anointed ones. He was now the completed Messiah, to which all of the other Messiahs, anointed ones, had been pointing to. In regard to Jesus, this wasn't just God working through a man. This was God becoming a man. And the response of Jesus was typical of the common response to everyone else that God had anointed. Him? Jesus? Really? I mean, he's Joseph's son, they would say. He's the son of a carpenter. He made that bench sitting in my house. The Messiah? I don't think so. And they would refer to where he was from. You know, he was a hometown boy from an out-of-the-way town. You know, the phrase was often said, has any good thing ever come out of Nazareth, which is where he was from? The reason they said that is because the answer is obvious. No. There's no power there. This can't be the anointed one, the Messiah. But this was. Now, the anointing work of God didn't end with Jesus. Jesus was the implementation of God's complete and full anointing plan. Jesus was the Christ, which is the Greek word for Messiah. The Hebrew word is Messiah. So the key, word, the key meaning is the anointed one. In Hebrew, that's Messiah. In Greek, that's Christ. He was Jesus the Christ. And as the Christ, God in flesh, he was not only anointed, but his anointing now flows from him to all of those who decide to follow him. This is stated clearly in the New Testament, book of 2 Corinthians, chapter 1, verse 21 and 22. It says, Now it is God who makes both us and you stand firm in Christ. He anointed us, set his seal of ownership on us, and put his spirits in our heart as a deposit guaranteeing what is to come. So let me just capture this anointed one idea again. So, so the, the big plan of God to counter the powers of this world is to anoint ordinary-looking nobodies to do his work. Really? That's his big power move? I mean, how can that counter the armies and the economies of this world? How can that stand against the vast media empires that are dripping their ideas directly into the brains of people in the same way an IV delivers medicine into the bloodstream? How can ordinary people like us counter that? The amazing thing is that for the past 2,000 years, God's anointing grassroots approach through Jesus Christ has worked. It's accomplished more than you can imagine. We're actually going to look at that this fall. Shortly after Jesus ascended back into heaven, a group of his followers entered the city of Thessalonica, a powerful city in the Roman Empire of the time. And they were brought before the leaders of the city, and, and what was said about them was this, shouting about these people, these men who have turned the world upside down have also come here, have come here also. 
If you look at these men, these are ordinary men, and they're, they're being accused of turning the world upside down. Has anyone accused you of that? No. But that's exactly what happened. Not instantly, but in a few hundred years, the world had been turned upside down by the followers of Christ. Throughout history, the people of God have often looked hopelessly outmanned, outfunded, and outdated. That is the case now. We're just not used to it. All of our brothers and sisters in Christ before us, this has been the world they've lived in. We were in one of those anomalies of history where a government power was actually for the Christian virtue and values. So we're getting used to this thing that our brothers and sisters in Christ have always lived with. That is why we are called to pray. It's only as we close our eyes and look to the God who has anointed ordinary people like us that we will have the chance to get up off our knees and face the intimidating powers of this world with courage. That's image number one. Anointed ones, ordinary people behind the scenes doing the work of God to turn the world upside down. Image number two is laughter. Four, four through six again in Psalms 2. The anointed one in heaven, la or the enthroned one in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. He rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. So what's God's response to the vast powers of this world arrayed against him? He laughs. Why? Because from his perspective, it looks like a five-year-old boy wearing a cape and insisting that he is, in fact, Superman. It's, it's kind of comical, because it's just not the case. And here's the lesson for me from this. Our tendency, my tendency, is to take the arrogance of this world too seriously. They strut and say this and that, and I go, oh, no, or I get angry rather than, oh, you little five-year-old boy in your Superman cape. How cute is that? Evil, but cute. I take it too seriously. God invites us to see it for what it is, to inform our imagination properly. What it is, is it's people pretending to be more important than they really are. It's as we kneel in prayer before the real power of this world that a smile should start to break on our face as we think about the pretending powers of this world, strutting around, running things, they think. And then... With the powers of this world smiled down to size, we can see the real king and bow before him. That's the third image, bowing now. Everyone will eventually bow before God. There's only two options. Either we bow before God's mercy now or we bow before his judgment then. Bowing is not the choice. The timing is the choice. And the timing determines whether we experience his mercy or we experience his judgment. So who is this king that God installed in Zion, that is the city of Jerusalem? Well, it's clearly Jesus Christ, the anointed one, the Messiah. His death and his resurrection were his coronation moment. 
It was the visible evidence of the decree that now follows here in verses 7 through 9. Here's the decree. I will proclaim the Lord's decree. He said to me, "You." here's the decree. You are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask me, and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. You will break them with a rod of iron. You will dash them to pieces like pottery. Jesus doesn't just deal with the nations of this world. He owns them. They are, as it says, his possession. And what that means is if they don't turn to him, eventually, in a way of his own doing, they will be broken, just like pottery smashed. If you look at the history of the world, there's a lot of pottery shards. There's a lot of broken nation shards laying around. And it is arrogant for us to think that all the nations and powers of this world will go on because no nation and power ever has. If they don't turn, they will be broken. The laughter that we talked about earlier is not a making fun of kind of laughter. It's a resizing kind of laughter, seeing it for what it is kind of laughter, because it's no laughing matter when people plot against God. In his own time and way, God will show up in his anger and their response at that moment will be absolute and sheer terror before his power. So that's why Psalms 2 ends with a warning to the wielders of power in this vast world. Here's what it says, 10 through 12. Therefore, you kings, smarten up. Be wise. Be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear, which means respect, and celebrate his rule with trembling. Kiss the son, literally bow before him and kiss him in adoration and submission, or he will be angry, and your way will lead to your destruction, for his wrath can flare up in a moment. It doesn't, but it can, and eventually it will. Blessed are all who take refuge in him, which is what we talked about last Sunday. So after we smile at the great powers of this world dressed up in their Superman capes, we then pray for them. Because like us, now is their only chance to come to the conclusion about who really runs this world. And when you're in a position of power and you see what you do have all kinds of effect, it is so hard for you to see beyond your own power, beyond your own cape. So we pray for them. Now is the time to serve the Lord and kiss Jesus the Son in adoration, bow before him. That's why we pray. Prayer is a moment, a chance that we get to see the way things really are rather than the way things appear to be. It's the only way that we can see how, the pow how powerful it really is to be one of the ordinary people who God has anointed to do his work in this part of our world. And it's as we pray in the face of all of the intimidation of this world that we find refuge in God. So let's pray. Father, we bow our heads before you because you are 
ruler of all. We close our eyes because we can't see that now. I pray that you would instruct and inform our collective imaginations to see the world the way it really is. It's hard for us to see beyond a day or a week. If we could even just imagine the flow of history, we would see the wreckage of great powers of this world long and gone and everything they built long and gone. So we confess to you that we get too scared, too angry, too intimidated by the powers of this world and their Superman capes. God, we ask that you would give us courage to do our part to be your anointed ones in the places and the assignments that you've given us. We long for the day when we see you, but until that day, we pray for the powers of this world. We pray for our friends that they would see you and bow before you now in mercy rather than face you in judgment. We ask this now in the name of Jesus Christ, our ruler, our king. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Seabreeze Church podcast. For more information about our church, you can visit our website, seabreezechurch.com. Thanks again for listening in, and we hope you'll join us next week for the Seabreeze Church podcast.